Hi, I'm Mitch. And I'm Mel. This is Policy Talks. Welcome to Policy Talks, a show diving into all things related to policy analysis in international affairs. It's not surprising, given political agendas, given that aid is just one piece of the puzzle, that we have critics saying, oh, well, you know, we've not achieved as much as we would like with aid. It's because it's complex and there's a lot more at play. You know, Mel, We've been doing this for a couple episodes now, and I have to say, every time we get in the studio, it's always an interesting topic. It is. It's always sure. a meaty topic. Um, but I have to admit that this week, because the two of us are scholars of development, um, this week's topic, I think, is particularly interesting. Um, so uh, for those of you listening, this week we're talking about international assistance. Now, you may have heard the term international assistance or development assistance or foreign aid. For the most part, these terms are used synonymously, and what we're really talking about is the transfer of resources from developed countries to developing countries in order to help them meet their development objectives in a variety of sectors. So specifically this week, we're hoping to talk a little bit about the uh, current situation and emerging trends in international assistance, um, particularly in the last 15 years. Uh, and more specifically in here in Canada, talking about what the current policies are uh, for Canadian international assistance uh, and looking forward, now is a very interesting time to be talking about this topic, looking forward, what can we expect to see uh, from a policy perspective for the way in which Canada can deliver its international assistance. Yeah, so now that's now that Mitch has provided some brief context on today's episode, which yes, Mitch, I'm very excited for. That was appropriately said. Uh, let's get into talking about the current situation of foreign aid and some of the emerging trends that we've seen with this. So we see that the majority of international assistance is contributed by the 29 members of the DAC. That's the Development Assistance Committee. Now, this is a forum within the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, the OECD. Now, these 29 members are mostly Western donors like Canada, the UK, France, and so on. And if we look at the DAC's 2016 Development Cooperation Report, it shows that official development assistance, also known as ODA, reached about 132 billion US dollars in 2015. This is a record level. And it's part of why looking at this topic is really interesting, because a lot of resources are going to this cause of assisting developing countries. Now, ODA is primarily delivered in two forms. We have first bilaterally, which means it's coming directly from governments, and we also have multilaterally, which means aid from different countries are being pooled and then being delivered through multilateral institutions like the World Bank, the IMF, the UN. Now, since 2000, the year 2000, there's been more of an increased focus on collective action for international assistance. We saw this with the announcement of the eight MDGs, which stands for Millennium Development Goals, which had the timeline from the year 2000 to 2015. And then around last year, we saw the switchover from the eight MDGs to the 17 SDGs, which stands for the Sustainable Development Goals, whose timeline is from 2016 to 2030. Now, 
Both of these sets of goals act as a framework of priorities for international development policy and development assistance. And as mentioned before, there's a lot, there's a lot of money going to ODA. So another important aspect of this, an important question is to ask, is it making a difference? What impact is it having? So this is a reasonable question to ask. And so we've seen an increased focus on aid effectiveness and an increase on the number of high-level fora addressing aid effectiveness. We saw this in 2005 with the Paris Declaration on Aid Effectiveness and in 2008 with the ACRA Agenda for Action. So that's a little bit about the current situation and some of the trends. Let's let's get in a little more specifically about Canada's situation. Absolutely. Um, so if we look specifically at what Canada is doing right now in terms of its international assistance and uh, I'll put it out a little bit in terms of the the, the what, the where, and the who, uh, in terms of how Canada is providing its international assistance and all of these figures um, that I'm about to 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 touch on. They all come directly from the government. This is all cited from the stati- uh, statistical report on international assistance from 2014-2015. Uh, so in that fiscal year, um, Canada's total international assistance was approximately 5.84 billion. Um, now. The breakdown of that, as Mel was touching on, the different avenues in which we can distribute aid. Bilateral aid constituted about $4 billion of that, and multilateral aid constituted about one8 So it's about a ratio of 2 to 1, bilateral to multilateral. Now, that $5.84 billion figure, that's collectively coming from Canada. Um, but it's important to know that, that the majority of that is coming from Global Affairs Canada, or the, the, the Department for Foreign Affairs trade and development, I, I think if that's what it's still technically um, defined as. Um, but there are other big sources. So obviously Global Affairs Canada has the majority of it at $3.75 billion. So about two-thirds of all of Canada's international assistance comes from Global Affairs Canada. The other big sources, the Department of Finance has about $1.4 billion. The International Development Research uh, Centre has uh, about $200 million. Immigration, Refugees and Citizenship Canada the RCMP, the Department of National Defense, the Public Health Agency of Canada. These are other sources. Um, but primarily, Global Affairs Canada is responsible for two-thirds of the amount of international assistance that Canada provides on the international stage. And in terms of the what, the thematic priorities, Canada has a series of priorities that, they, that they're that they addressing with the, the provision of international assistance, the main one being securing the future of children and youth. And this specifically includes maternal, newborn, and child health, or MNCH. And I think globally, that's one of the main areas where Canada is recognized as having a core competence um, and a specific focus. If we go back to the, the Muskoka Accords and the Muskoka Initiative, Canada really is known for placing an emphasis, or has been for the last uh, several years, placing an emphasis on maternal, newborn, and child health in development programming. Some of the other thematic priorities that, that Canada has contributed significant amounts of aid to, humanitarian assistance, stimulating sustainable economic growth, increasing food security, promoting stability and security, advancing democracy. Um, These are all, you know, a a selection of the thematic priorities that Canada is focusing on. Um, In terms of the where, so Canada provides international assistance to several countries, um, but just to give you a quick rundown of the top five, according to this report in 2014-2015, the top five recipients of Canadian international assistance. Number one, Ukraine. Uh, number two, Afghanistan, and from there, Ethiopia, Tanzania, and Pakistan. So that rounds out the top five to give you an idea of where the majority of Canadian national assistance is going. That's the top five recipients uh, globally. 
And you know, Mitch, it's really interesting when you're covering the the or outlining who the top five recipients are. It really makes me think about why Canada, not just Canada, but why all donors choose which recipients uh, to give aid to. And this is this is an issue that I know we discussed in in our international development or international aid course, and and we'll be getting to this question a little later on and uh, look at why it, perhaps it's not just the need that's driving donor decisions to give their, uh, to distribute their financial aid. Uh, another thing I was thinking of when you were going over the different priorities and and talking about how Canada is a leader in certain aspects of, of, of foreign aid, it really made me think of that longstanding 0.7% foreign aid target that was set in the 70s. Uh, Canada has actually never met this goal. I think for the last decade, it's been hovering around 0.3%. And actually, only a handful of countries uh, are meeting this goal right now. I believe it's Sweden, Denmark, uh, Norway, Luxembourg, the Netherlands, the UK, and and the UAE. So this is something we'll touch on later because it's an interesting issue to to consider that target and whether or not it's still relevant. Absolutely, the the the, the intricacies of of the provision of international assistance is what makes it such an interesting topic. I think. Um, so beyond the where, just. Uh, finally, the who. So the different channels that that receive Canadian funding for international assistance. We've got Canadian organizations such as Plan Canada, multilateral organizations such as the World Food Program, international and global partners such as the uh, Mercy Corps and the ICRC, and then, of course, partner governments. So, so bilateral directly to, for example, the government of Tanzania or the government of Pakistan. Um, so that's a kind of a snapshot of where we're at now. And looking forward and what makes this so interesting is the international assistance review um, so it's it's right now the government of canada is conducting a review to look at how canada can best use its resources to address challenges uh, in global international assistance and make as much of an impact as possible so uh, it's been so long but finally there's a review looking at the, the the policies currently in place and how we can tweak them, how we can make appropriate changes to to make international assistance from Canada a little bit more effective. Absolutely. So it's, it's a very timely topic. And today we'll be discussing some of these issues with our guest, Fraser Riley King. Fraser Riley King is the Senior Policy Analyst on Aid and International Cooperation for the Canadian Council for International Cooperation, also known as the CCIC. This is the umbrella organization for Canadian not for not-for-profit organizations engaged in international development. He is also the vice chair of the Reality of Aid Network and was the former North American representative to the CSO Partnership for Development Effectiveness. Thanks for joining us, Fraser. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so let's just dive right in. We've touched on quite a few different aspects of foreign aid and, and different issues and debates. So, But for our listeners who are perhaps new, relatively new to the concept of foreign aid, I know we touched on on the bilateral versus multilateral delivery, uh, but it does come in several other forms and can be broken up and disaggregated. Uh, can you just kind of go over some of the different forms that, that development assistance can take? Sure, and maybe first I'll just start out by saying uh, you've, you've thrown around a couple of terms for referring to it. I, I personally like to talk about development cooperation okay. instead of, I think, foreign aid. Um, as somebody used to used to say, you know, uh, especially in a climate like Europe, um, where there's an, a lot of antagonism uh, towards new uh, new immigrants, etc. You've got foreign, which people don't like, and you've got aid, which people don't like, and you're putting them together. So, 
the general public, I don't think, are receptive to it, maybe, as much as the idea of development cooperation. But as you've noted, it also is because it's about more than just money. Um, it's different types of cooperation. Um, so I would say, especially in the context of the Sustainable Development Goals, we're talking about diplomatic efforts that can reinforce our global development cooperation objectives. Uh, there's trade, there's environmental policy, etc. But in terms of the format it takes, I mean, you've noted that it goes through um, different recipients, so multilateral institutions like the World Bank, the Asian Development Bank, the World Food Program. Bilateral, yes, so government to government. Um, what we've actually seen in the past 10 years, if you look at the sort of trends, is that multilateral is getting more and more of the funding from Canada. Bilateral, governments themselves are getting less and less uh, the third sort of big recipient, I guess, is civil society organizations. So many of our members uh, are getting them. And they're doing a range of different work. Um, you know, you've, you've touched upon the different themes, so food security, uh, maternal, newborn, child health, humanitarian assistance. Um, they're providing sort of relief uh, and development in, in some circumstances like humanitarian assistance. Um, they're helping save people's lives, if you want, in precarious situations of conflict or natural disaster. Um, but then they're also helping implement uh, education programs, working with partners, etc., uh, working through governments to, to implement programs. Um, so a range of sort of different ways of providing that assistance. And so you mentioned that now multilateral organizations are, are getting more of the funds to deliver aid. I was wondering if you just could expand on, on maybe why that's happening, why that's become more of a trend. I think it uh, it's become a trend because it's easy to sign a check if you want and send that money to a big institution. You can get the money out the door, so to speak. Um, whereas when you're negotiating uh, agreements with governments or with civil society organizations. It's, you're talking about contracts and outcomes and deliverables and all of that. And so it takes a little bit longer. And often uh, a colleague of mine did some analysis on when money was actually going out the door. And uh, he noted that for the past several years, you've got 80, you know, roughly 80% of money going out the door in the month of March just before the end of the fiscal year. So for some institutions uh, like Finance Canada, it's quickly to just, or it's easy to just quickly send the money to the World Bank. And then, you know, you've, you've delivered your amount. And I guess also as a bureaucracy, you don't risk, if you keep on delivering that amount, you're, you're sending it out, you're going to be able to ask for that amount back in your budget. But if there's delays in signing contracts, then maybe you have less leeway to get that same amount next year, you know, to, to deliver for your specific programs. Does, with an increased focus on, on, on multilateral channels, does that not then require donors such as, the, such as the government of Canada to surrender a little bit in terms of ability to track the, the or, or from an accountability perspective, the ability to track what the results are of that specific amount of funding that's going through these multilateral channels? Exactly, I think you've hit a nail on the head there. Um, Part of the challenge as well that we face is I think we find that there's an undue or disproportionate amount of uh, reporting and accountability. We all want both of those, but a disproportionate amount for civil society organizations and or maybe governments relative to the World Bank. 
you know, they're reporting in general for funds that they've received, but, you know, they're not being held to account by the Canadian public for what they did or didn't do. Um, whereas, you know, in many cases, governments or, or civil society organizations are. Interesting. So I previously touched on kind of the concept of aid effectiveness and, and the, the increased focus that that's getting. So do you think AIDS is getting more effective? I know that's it's a very broad question, but yeah, share our, our share your views on that yeah. with us. I guess there's two elements to that. One is maybe more around like the technical delivery of aid. Is that becoming more effective? And I think we're we're getting better at doing it. Um, it's important that you've had these series of meetings at the high level uh, where you come up with concepts around alignment. It's important that we align. Uh, our programs with developing country priorities. It's important as donors that we harmonize what we're doing in a country so that we're not, you know, building uh, or supporting uh, countries to build plumbing systems that have five different types of, you know, bolts and nuts or whatever. Um, that, uh, that countries, probably the most important one, that countries feel ownership over their development programs. I think in theory we're getting better at that, but a lot of donors have really forgotten those agendas. Um, and so, for example, while it's, um, while it's important for Canada, for the new government, to figure out what its priorities might be going forward, it also seems to be in contrast with those principles. So what is Canada's competitive advantage? In theory, it shouldn't matter because the goal of development assistance of development cooperation is to provide resources for countries who've determined their own national plans to implement them. You don't say, you know, this is our advantage, this is what we can do best, and this is what we want you to do. It's, it's those countries' right to do it. And I, and I think I would absolutely agree with you, and I think because the provision of, of development cooperation this has been happening for, for over 50 years, and we've seen an evolution over time of the strategies or the tactics or the policies involved in how donors provide development cooperation. And um, this idea of, of mandating a prescription on recipient countries saying, this, we'll give you this assistance, but in order to do that, we need you to do X, Y, and Z. Yeah. What may have happened in the 1980s, for example, with structural adjustment programs. Um, and I think at, at the t uh, looking back, people have referred to that in, in a sense as the lost decade of development because it was not, it did not, it, it lacked that, that cultural sensitivity, the, the context specificities for each individual country. So for you to mention that, that it's mm -hmm. important that donor countries are not, um, they're not, they're, I guess in a sense, they're helping recipient countries to achieve their own goals, or that's at least the vision here. It's helping recipient countries achieve their own their own identified goals as opposed to mm -hmm. prescribing a one-size-fits-all for every every developing country. Yeah, exactly. I mean, governments know what, what they need to deliver, right? This Canadian government, they'll have different political agendas, but they know what they need to deliver. And you talk about sort of the lost decade and structural adjustment policies. I mean, increasingly, um, the OECD, the World Bank, uh, and the International Monetary Fund is putting out research that is demonstrating that in fact they got it pretty wrong on a lot of those policies. So for example, one core element of the neoliberal agenda of structural adjustment was around liberalizing your financial markets. Uh, and they put out research saying that in fact they've, they realize now that a lot of those policies have actually exacerbated inequality in countries. So this agenda is, is politicized, but 
Um, I just wanted to touch upon the other side of it, of how effective aid is. And I mean, we can we can see from the results, like, you know, infant mortality has decreased, maternal mortality has decreased. We've almost eradicated completely polio. Um, we're making progress on malaria, TB, etc. Um, there's been progress there, but I think it's also important to remember that uh, development is incredibly complex, right? There's a lot going on. That's why we have now 17 goals, 17 development goals. Um, and I think the general public, the way we've been telling the story about global development cooperation is that we have this resource that we use for global development cooperation. Um, but there's a whole range of other resources that we need. Domestic resource mobilization, taxation, like trade, investment, etc. And we've maybe overstated how much this small resources of official development assistance can actually achieve for global development cooperation when you have trade policies that might completely undermine what you've been trying to do through your aid program. Uh, or foreign direct investment um, that has fled out of a country. Um, you cited figures of $130 billion for the OECD as sort of an all-time high. Every year, the African continent loses around $160 billion in taxable revenue through capital flight, most of which is through the practices of transnational corporations. So it's not surprising, given political agendas, given that aid is just one piece of the puzzle, that we have critics saying, oh, well, you know, we've not achieved as much as we would like with aid. It's because it's complex and there's a lot more at play. So you touched on the, the value of the, the, the 17 SDGs, which were introduced last year. And, and I know some people have, there's a little bit of, of debate over that. And, and it's been a jump from eight goals to 17. And some people have said that maybe we're trying to accomplish too much and there's too many areas to focus on. What, what are your thoughts on that? There was lots of debate about the number of, of goals last year when they were coming out. And I mean, there's two points maybe to make on this from my perspective. Um, I don't know if you know how many articles are in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. There's 30 articles. I was going to say you put us on the spot. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I didn't do my homework. No. You could, you could say any number. Yeah. So there's, sure. there you, you go. Agree. I think there's around 30 articles. So at the time of creating them, did the proponents say, you know what, like... General public isn't going to get it. This concept of human rights is new. Maybe we should go for two or right. let's have eight. Forget freedom of expression, freedom of assembly, um, you know, the right to live a, a life free of violence. You know, we're going to drop those because we can eight. That's that's a good number. Or let's do 10. So I don't really buy it from that perspective. But also um, this is a, a brand new agenda. It's an all encompassing agenda. And it touches upon the three pillars of sustainable development, so society, economy, and environment. The world is complicated, and the fact that they only had 17 goals from the same perspective is, is even surprising. They touch on everything, and I think at a time like this where there's growing global inequality, uh, where we're on the verge of a complete climate catastrophe and global meltdown, uh, we saw the financial crisis of 2008, uh, I've talked about the leaks of funding from, from countries around the world, um, violence against women, all of these issues. We need this big, ambitious agenda. I think as well, um, 
so we we've seen kind of this this shift towards these collective goals, the MDGs and the SDGs, and this has been a relatively um, new policy direction, I guess, since since the, the turn of the millennium. Um, I think another trend that that um, we're seeing more and more of is in terms of the donor base itself. So Mel touched on in the development assistance community. I think it's there's 29 members right now. These the, the idea of these traditional donors that have been members of the development assistance community for a long time. Um, but at the same time, more and more we're seeing these non-DAC donors, these emerging donors um, from non-traditional uh, countries, countries that were at one point developing themselves. Mm-hmm. China, for example, is is a, is is a very significant emerging donor, and the, their presence now in development cooperation, I think, um, raises questions about kind of uh, traditional policies or or how these traditional donors have approached development cooperation. I was wondering if you could comment a little bit on what what impacts do you see these non-traditional or emerging donors having on on policy development in mm-hmm. uh, in development cooperation? Yeah, you, you've hit a, a good point. I mean, it's important to keep in mind that the landscape is really changing. Uh, we we no longer just have these OECD donors, and and frankly, we didn't always only have them either. Um, Turkey, South Korea, China, India, United Ab- Arab Emirates, Saudi Arabia, Brazil. There's a whole host of new and emerging donors that are providing assistance, uh, but also sort of technical cooperation, sharing of knowledge and learning. Um, The whole area of what's called South-South cooperation uh, or triangular cooperation, so where the OECD traditional donors are supporting, if you want, exchanges between Southern partners. That's a whole emerging area. I think one of the challenges in terms of these principles of aid effectiveness, if you want, um, so after the Accra Agenda for Action, there was a fourth high-level fora in Busan. And the idea there was that it was a recognition that the OECD, to some extent, was kind of the old ways, and we needed to develop this new institution now called the Global Partnership for Effective Development Cooperation. And the ambition of that new forum was to try and try and bring everyone together, all of these different assistance providers together, uh, and offer you know, a shared set of of principles um, that could guide all actors in providing assistance. Unfortunately, many of the emerging donors came, but they didn't really necessarily sign on to this agenda. I think they still felt it was a donor-driven agenda and they had different priorities. So it's challenging um, when you're trying to create these standard practices, if you want, standard set of principles to guide, uh, guide this practice. Um, where not everyone agrees to sign on. Um, But also I know there's a lot of criticism of new donors, uh, like India, like China. Um, I don't think they're necessarily the best uh, practitioners. Um, A lot of criticism about how, um, in some cases, uh, Chinese will bring in indentured labor to work on their their programs. Um, But at the same time, a, they're getting the job done, and B, to a large extent, they're not doing things any differently than, you know, the traditional donors. You know, people are pointing to the fact that they're being, you know, so political and, you know, they're pushing their own agenda. And, well, you know, the way you've talked as well, it's always been political, the provision of development cooperation. So none of us, none of our, us are innocent and. I think it's far too easy to point the finger at other donors for not 
practicing well, at least they're, you know, getting on with the job, if you want. Exactly. I, I couldn't agree more. And that's, that's something we we definitely got into as we were researching for this episode. And it, yeah, there's a lot of finger pointing going on and, and with this new trend. So that was a great point. <laughs> and uh, just before we take a break, I had one more question. You mentioned the uh, the perhaps drawbacks of sending one standard and and I mentioned before that 0.7% target that was set a few decades ago and Canada hasn't reached it and hasn't even really come close to reaching it and there are very few that have is is this a relevant target is there a point in having a target that that not a lot of countries can reach I think it's I think it's still relevant Okay. Um, for me, it was always uh, an aspirational target to reach. Um, but in the past year, I think we within CCIC have started thinking about it a little bit differently. Uh, before, we were just calling on the government to reach 0.7. Now our approach is more, this is an aspirational goal for you. If you want Canada to be back, if you care about gender equality, uh, if you care about the poorest and most marginalized, then why don't you invest massive amounts of money in women's rights organizations? Why don't you make 20% of the projects that you support have a, a principal focus on gender equality and women's rights? Why don't you make yourself the top donor in those 25 countries of focus where you operate? Uh, why don't you invest massive amounts in climate change adaptation and mitigation? Um, if you want to be at the fore, if you want to set that agenda, or even influencing global thinking, invest in research, invest in IDRC or uh, the old North-South Institute, invest in research and thinking, demonstrate leadership. And if you do all of those things, people will probably see you as more of a player in the world, you'll be more influential, and you'll probably also start moving towards that 0.7 target. But you can't talk about wanting to be back and wanting to be a global leader and sticking at 0.24, 0.28. You know, money, I think, does come with uh, some privileges, so to speak. Um, and so I think if Canada wants to talk that talk, it's got to walk the walk, too. Absolutely. Um, and I just want to emphasize, we may have touched on it, but for those of you listening who may not be as verbose in the 0.7%, what we're talking about here is um, official development assistance as a percentage of a country's total uh, GNI or gross national income, the target here is 0 0.7. So um, that is the, that's been the target for a long time. And unfortunately, um, only a very few select donors have been able to reach it. Uh, Fraser, you've touched on a lot of things and you actually provided an excellent segue talking about Canada specifically and steps that it can take moving forward. Um, but uh, before we address those, we're going to take a quick break and uh, we'll be back with more on development cooperation with Fraser Riley King. Listening to Policy Talks, recorded at CKCU 93.1. For more, go to www.policytalkspodcast.com.
we're back with our guest, Fraser Riley King, hashing out the top, sorry, not foreign aid, which is what I was going to say. As we learned, it's better to say development cooperation. So we've touched on some important issues uh, regarding this so far. So let's delve right back in and with a bit more of a focus on uh, Canadian development policy. So Canada is currently concluding its international assistance review, as we touched on. How significant would you say that this process is? I think for our sector, so the Canadian development and humanitarian community in Canada, it's hugely important. There hasn't been a review like this, I don't think, since the mid-90s. There was a foreign policy review under Martin, I think, in 2005, um, but not specific to the international development uh, community, if you want. So it's important for, you know, for reshaping uh, or shaping Canada's direction looking forward. And it it comes at a hugely important time. Last year was a big year uh, for the world. We had not just the adoption of the Sustainable Development Goals, but the Paris Agreement on Climate Change. There was the Sendai Framework on Disaster Risk Reduction, 20 years since the Beijing Declaration and Platform for Action on Women's Rights. Um, We've had a humanitarian summit since in May. Uh, We're looking at a refugee summit uh, in a few weeks' time. So it's a real opportunity for Canada to look forward, you know, the next at least five years um, and give a vision for for how we want to proceed in the world. Um, In in this international assistance review, there are so many aspects from a policy perspective of, of, of how Canada can can adjust what it's doing currently to better address the situation and be more effective. Um, one, for example, um, that we were just talking about was um, the countries of focus. So currently Canada has uh, 25 countries of focus um, in its provision of development cooperation. Uh, and I'd like to hear your thoughts. You know, is, that a, is that a good number? And then uh, the, the 25 that we currently have, should that list be adjusted? Should we drop some and add some new ones? Uh, it's a good question. And as you know, the Standing Committee on Foreign Affairs and International Development held hearings in uh, May and June on this issue, trying to think about Canada's countries of focus. And it's sort of part and parcel, as, as you said, of, of the International Assistance Review. Um, I think our perspective at CCIC is that there isn't a perfect number of countries. Um, our aid isn't necessarily, there's no correlation between the number of countries where you're focusing and the enhanced effectiveness of your aid, like they're separate things. If you follow those principles we were talking about, uh, then your aid delivery might be more effective. You may not necessarily have a better impact on the ground, but technical delivery will be more effective. So I think it's a bit of a false argument to try and pick a number, but what I would say at this point in time, especially when we're rethinking the, the broader framework for what we're doing, is it would not be a good idea to change our countries of focus. And that, gath- that gets back to uh, one of the, the meetings that you referenced, the Accra Agenda for Action, the I think third high-level four on aid effectiveness. So one of the core principles that came out of that is predictability. So governments are better able to plan uh, a five-year cycle uh, or their coming year if they know how much money they're going to be getting from different governments. If you keep on flip-flopping as a donor and changing who you're going to support, you become a little bit of a liability, I think, to a country. And so they don't want to be your, your partner. So I think right now 
the government, we've got a big sweeping change of policy. We need to have some predictability in the countries where we're focusing. Uh, we need to have a bit more predictability in, you know, CETA staff and who you're partnering with. So I would suggest that, that we not change the countries of focus. Absolutely. And Mitch previously mentioned the, the breakdown that Canada has for its bilateral and multilateral funding. So it's about two to one bilateral to multilateral. Do you think this is an appropriate ratio? And if not, should, mm. should we be altering this? The only sort of figure that we're talking about is really, again, if your focus is on the poorest and most marginalized and on, on least developed countries, then we've suggested that Canada dedicate at least 50% of its bilateral programming official development assistance to low-income, least developed, fragile states, uh, and that it moved towards the, there's another UN target of 0.15 to 0.20 of gross national income to least developed countries. So let's move more resources into the countries that most need them. Um, Let's do it responsibly. responsibly. Um, It takes time for countries or organizations to be able to absorb these resources. Um, So I think if we build up our um, how much aid we have and we're providing to these countries over time, that could be useful. But I think also, I mean, I've just talked about it at the government level. I think we need to rebalance, again, how much funding we provide to multilaterals, to regional institutions, um, to countries, and to civil society organizations. Uh, And as we noted earlier, right now our sense is that there's a disproportionate amount going to multilateral. Um, Bilateral are suffering the most. Governments uh, that need those resources are suffering the most. So I'd say a better mix if you want. I mean, I've got no perfect ratio, uh, but, you know, ideally it might be um, 25 or 30 to governments, 25 or 30 um, to civil society, uh, maybe 10 to 15 to regions, and, and the rest to multilateral. Did you did you come in with those figures, or did you? Just <laughs> no, I just made that up on well, the spot. Uh, it sounded very official to me. The, uh, but the uh, idea is just, you know, right. like let's focus at international, regional, national, and, and local. Mm-hmm. You know? Balance is important. Exactly. And make sure you're touching all, touching all the points yeah. going down. And I think, sorry to interrupt there, it's also about one of the the big things that came out of Busan of the fourth high-level forum on aid effectiveness, where you broaden the tent to different array of, of donors. Um, civil society, for example, I mean, I've been talking a lot about that, but that's my background. Civil society organizations, we estimate, provide around $70 billion per year for international development. Uh, so that's not far short of what, you know, 29, the largest economies in the world are providing. So going forward from Busan, there was a real sense, and this has also come out in the sustainable development agenda, that it's no longer about government to government. Uh, it's about three levels of government, you know, municipal, provincial, or state and federal. It's about civil society organizations, about parliamentarians, about private sector, unions. You know, there's a whole range of development actors that we need to work with. And we know that from the reality of life here in Canada, you know. We all need all of these different actors for things to move forward. Absolutely. And I think that's that's reflective, again, as the provision of development cooperation has been for, we, we've been doing it for so long that as 
as globalization kind of breaks down these communicate or, or increases the ability to to communicate and to to be able to as individual citizens we're able to to do more research into where funds are going what the issues are i think it, it allows for greater participation and it's not just you know this idea that the government can only deal with the government and mm-hmm. then you know at the at the highest level and that we can't have other other entities involved mm-hmm. in the process as well i think this is also uh an opportunity, and, and this has been a big interest of mine in the context of this new agenda, Agenda 2030. One of the big ideas that came out, I mean, it's not that big an idea, but an important idea is the concept of universality. So unlike the Millennium Development Goals, which applied to developing countries over there, these are a set of goals, 17 goals for all countries everywhere. So these apply as much to Canada as they do to Cameroon. Um, This new government, the Liberal government, has committed to implementing them domestically and internationally. And when you talk, we we organized a conference with the Assembly of First Nations um, talking about this new universal agenda. Uh, Chief Perry uh, of the Assembly of First Nations came and spoke about them, and he's excited about these goals because they have huge implications for Canadians. What that means by universal agenda is I think it's much more Uh, much easier in our narrative to talk about global development cooperation, to talk about goals that meaningfully impact and can change people's lives here and elsewhere. It's easier to make that link between the reality of Canadians and them being more uh, empathetic, if you want, to the, the plight of people around the world. Everybody can see themselves in them, and you can connect to people's local realities everywhere. I think a something that we've we've touched on a couple of times but haven't completely come out and addressed it is motivations motivations for the provision of of assistance or development cooperation um in an ideal world perhaps the provision of development cooperation would be almost entirely altruistic um uh, but there are so many there are so many considerations that that come into play and from canada's perspective we have the i the international assistance review happening right now Canada has also announced recently, in, in the recent past, that it will be bidding for a seat on the Security Council. Should these two things or, or considerations be intertwined at all? I guess what I'm, I'm, what I'm really asking is, should Canada's bid for, for a seat on the Security Council in 2021, should that be impacting at all the policies that come out of the International Assistance Review? Mm. I think if in January or February, whenever the final policy comes out uh, as a result of these consultations, I think Canada has a tremendous opportunity to really do things differently uh, in global development cooperation, to think very differently about its approach. Um, And I think if it does that, uh, if it thinks outside the box, then that can't, in my mind, that can't but help our bid uh, for a Security Council seat. I think it situates us us better if we're more forward-thinking, we're more uh, progressive, if you want, in the way we think about domestic challenges and how they're linked to global challenges. I think that would situate us well. And you just said, you know, Canada should or should seize this opportunity to think outside the box. I know you've already touched on a, on a couple ways, but I would love to, off the top of your head, if if Mel here were Minister Bibo and I were Minister Dion, uh, and we were having a sit down with you and we said, okay, Razor, we want to think outside the box. Tell us, what should Canada do? How should Canada change its policies? Right. 
Well, Mr. Dion and Ms. Bebo. <laughs> um, one of them is, uh, I guess, I'll start macro and then maybe I'll try and think a little bit more micro. But again, linked to this idea of, of universality. It's about, uh, it touches on maybe three elements. So what do we need to do domestically to realize this agenda? You know, there's lots of situations of inequality and poverty here in Canada. So how can we move that forward? How can we help other countries to realize this agenda who don't have the resources? And what role can we play in the global arena to move key global challenges forward? So global public goods, if you want, things like climate change, things like global financial stability, uh, the flight of or plight of, of refugees, um, crime, you know, global corruption, whatever. Um, how can we move those agendas forward and play a positive and constructive role in moving those forward? Situation of our lives now is that you know, technically, I guess borders define our states, but a lot of these problems of inequality and climate change and and criminal activity, they don't respect those national borders. So we have a role to play to try and move that forward globally. I think in terms of implementation of programs, we need to shift from, we need to shift how we talk about development, if you want, to Canadians, give them the sense of development cooperation, global development cooperation, that it's complicated, that, you know, you don't, you don't sponsor a child or you don't buy a goat and the situation of a country changes overnight, right? It's a difficult problem that we're trying to solve. Uh, so let's look at longer-term outcomes, not just short-term results. You know, maybe we can do a balance. Let's also, if we're talking about an agenda, 17 goals um, that touch upon society, environment, economy, that are deeply interconnected, how can we change how we deliver those programs? So let's, instead of the silos, let's think about creating, if you want, like a bucket or a basket approach to development where there can be a series of interventions uh, that are going to support um, women's economic empowerment, generate her livelihood, support her education, key health interventions, etc. Bundle them into a package that can move things forward. Um, and maybe respond to the priorities of the countries, of the partners that we're working with around, you know, what's the big gap that you see uh, needing identified and, and bundle a package specific to each of those countries. So so that last point, would you be advocating something similar to currently we have the Global Fund to fight AIDS, tuberculosis, and malaria. Now that is a, that is a pooled global fund by its very definition. Now that's targeting specific specific medical diseases. Is that, would you be advocating for something like that? But in more of a sector focus? Sort of yes and no. I think the Global Fund, from what I know of it, is is a good model because it responds to countries have to sort of develop their own plans uh, around what they need the money for. Uh, so again, you get to this issue of ownership. Um, but I think it's more around drawing on the experience and lessons we've learned from maternal newborn child health uh, where I think we had a series of kind of interventions ta tackling, um, you know, the most pressing challenges or causes of maternal mortality, uh, providing support to uh, a whole slew of local healthcare workers, strengthening the health system so that there's easier provision in harder areas, etc. So it's still sort of 
tackling the nutrition element of things and thinking about quality food and all of that. So, I mean, it's still something I'm, I'm trying to grapple with, but it's, we have such a tendency, I think, to immediately want to go back into our silos. And so how can we break down those silos and think about these different interventions that can get to the interconnectedness of, of the goals? Right. So with that complexity and, and you're talking about the value of, of bundling certain priorities, uh, aside from that, are there other specific tools or mechanisms Canada should be using to kind of strengthen its innovation and how it approaches uh, distributing aid? Mm. Innovation was a big buzzword um, in this review. Uh, my take on innovation, I think... There's a tendency when you talk about innovation to talk about sort of technical solutions, technical fixes to problems. Um, we need to broaden that, I guess, to think about social innovation or economic innovation, like different ways that um, the groups or economies or uh, whoever is, is coming up with new ideas for tackling problems. But I think we also need to support if you want existing innovations. So a lot of our members um, are constantly having to innovate. I mean, if you think about the situations in, in which we're working, um, where overnight you could have a natural disaster or um, a crop failure, like farmers are having to constantly innovate. All of these programs are having to constantly innovate to still generate an outcome. I think the big challenge with innovation is that especially when you put it in the context of sort of a results agenda, is results and results-based frameworks, if you want, log frames, aren't, um, aren't really conducive, in my mind, to innovation because you've got to map sort of a linear process. Innovation is more responsive to things as, as they evolve. It's emerging ideas. It's testing them out. It's throwing out the ones that don't work and going with the ones that do and... A log frame doesn't really allow you to do that, nor does uh, funding um, specific programs or projects. I think where groups can innovate is where they've provide, been provided with core funding that gives them the space, uh, the flexibility uh, to try out things. When you're stuck with a program and a, a hardcore kind of results framework, you're less inclined to diverge from that framework and try to innovate. So. Are there concerns about, um, with with what you just touched on, this idea of, of innovation, and then the flip side is, you know, the risks involved with innovating, and and and, and at at times with development cooperation, what is ultimately on the line here? Um, do you think that in order to to increase the amount of innovation that would happen in development cooperation, that donors and recipients need to be a little bit less risk averse and more and more embracing of of calculated risk, perhaps? Yeah, exactly. I mean. Um this point was made that I think in a lot of the consultations around the International Assistance Review is you're talking about innovation. So are you going to take a lot more risk as the government? Are you going to invest millions in a project that could completely fail? Um, I think we have to see what the government's appetite is for doing something. But also talk to, again, it's about being more realistic and genuine, if you want, about the Canadian with the Canadian public about what we're trying to achieve, global development cooperation, that, you know, you can't plan for everything and there's going to need to be some risks taken. And 
we need to shift to some extent um, the focus on accountability, which over the last 10 years has been to the Canadian public, who are going to be very risk-averse with their tax dollars being spent, to, if you want, the beneficiaries or the people that we're working with um, whose, whose lives are at stake. So, you know, it's about figuring out how much risk uh, global affairs is willing to take. Um, and I think you can still, you know, you can provide seed money if you want for smaller projects that can take the risks and then figure out how do we scale those up through different entities outside of Global Affairs Canada that may be more uh, prone to risk. Maybe there's there's opportunity there for, for private finance or something to absorb scaling up and taking even more risk. Absolutely. And... <laughs> Yeah, I mean, there's there's so much so much more we could go in and touch on as as we said. It's such a broad topic, and and Mitch and I are fascinated by it's it. An, it's so. an interesting topic and a topic yeah. I feel like we can speak to a little bit in our relatively brief experience. You've it. spoken very well. Well, thank you. But unfortunately, that is all the time we have today. Fraser, thanks so much for being with us again. Thank you very much for having me. It's been really interesting. Yeah, you shared some great insights. I, I know, I mean, I won't speak, speak for Mitch, but I, I've learned a lot today. Oh, absolutely. And I think <laughs> um, I was half expecting when we, we did a little scenario, I was half expecting you when I said, oh, tell us how Canada should think outside the box. I was half expecting you to reach down, pull out a policy paper. I just assume in Ottawa, <laughs> I assume in Ottawa, everyone is walking around with a policy paper. Don't they, though? Kind of just waiting <laughs> for their moment. I was thought you might yeah. slam it down on the table. But regardless... Um, Absolutely. It's always nice to it's it's always nice to talk to someone who who has the experience and the knowledge that that you can share. And I think your insights are great. And um, now that the consultation period has ended for the IAR and you know steps are being taken moving forward, I certainly hope that some of what you suggested is is reflected in that. And I think now is a really exciting time to be talking about development cooperation in Canada. I think for me it is exciting because just the opportunities and the directions that we could go you know, is huge. And I'm just hoping that, that the government will take that, that chance, take that risk. Absolutely. Um, so thank you very much for listening to another episode of Policy Talks. Stay tuned for another episode next week. And remember to visit us at policytalkspodcast.com and on Twitter at policytalkspod for updates and related content. This episode was made possible by our dedicated researcher, Mark Hyken and our producer, Joe Venkatesh. Until next time, I'm Mel. And I'm Mitch. This is Policy Talks.